Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Thursday and thanks for hanging out with us. I think, you know, I had a countdown leading up to the election. I need to have another countdown of like post-election, like two days after this madness three oh, days after this that's gonna get so <laughs> annoying people are gonna hate that people want to look forward to something give us christmas times okay google that i feel like we've i've asked you to google christmas like yeah, a bunch so, of times what am i your assistant you're my um, googler yeah an assistant i'm not a when did i become an intern uh let me see okay uh, how many oh, you keep days? you bring yourself lower and lower <laughs> We're 50 days until Christmas, people. Yeah. Let's think of something positive because right about. now we're in a, a crap hole. And maybe, to be honest, that actually might bring people to be sad, too, because it's not like they can really spend it with their families this year. Well, we can spend it all together virtually. Okay, coming up on the show, uh, the lawsuits coming from the Trump team. Do they matter? Plus, what happens if it's a tie? Oh, my God. Let's, can mm-hmm. we not think about it? Well, we are. We're breaking that down for you on the show. Right now, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Okay. Uh, Now, Joe Biden spoke earlier today after attending briefings on the ongoing COVID-19 crisis and the state of the economy. It is the will of the voters. No one, not anything else, that chooses the president of the United States of America. So, each ballot must be counted. And that's what we're going to see going through now. And that's how it should be. Democracy is sometimes messy. It sometimes requires a little patience as well. But that patience has been rewarded now for more than 240 years with a system of governance that's been the envy of the world. We continue to feel, Senator and I, we continue to feel very good about where things stand. We have no doubt that when the count is finished, Senator Harris and I will be declared the winners. So, I ask everyone to stay calm, all the people to stay calm. The process is working. So, uh, again, he seems very optimistic as the numbers are getting closer and closer. And still no official winner, as we know. He's doing a great job by not saying that he's the winner. And I also think he's doing a great job by trying to keep everyone calm because there's so much happening. And I guess he doesn't want people flocking to the streets in, in the way that they're already doing. But I think he's trying to give people some calmness as like showing what a leader should be. Yeah, I would say the latter. I mean, but he is kind of in this clip saying that he's pretty confident that they're gonna win. Yeah, of course, but that's not saying that he did win. That's different. There's two. It's a difference. Trump said he won. Joe Biden said he's confident that he's going to win. Of course he is. 
Fair enough. Now, pro-Trump protesters gathered around Maricopa County or Arizona Accounting Center. Uh, those crowd of protesters, they were armed. They claimed the vote had been stolen from President Trump as they gathered outside the counting center late Wednesday, ahead of the release of new results in the presidential and Senate races. Here's a clip of some of what went down. Now, that was one of several demonstrations across the country, some about the election, some about racial inequality. In New York, 50 people were arrested, officials told NBC New York. Now, journalists who work at WXYZ, it sounds like a fake station, but it's an ABC affiliate TV station in Detroit. They said that a video taken outside the voting center that is being shared is of a photographer loading their equipment and doesn't show voter fraud. People thought those were the votes. It was a box, okay? It was like a plastic box of their equipment. TCF Center is a venue for some of Michigan's ballot vote counting and has been the site of protests. The AP is among those who have called the state for Joe Biden, but votes are being counted. And that was so much trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, let's dive into the team report. Those pop culture stories that are trending right now. Andy Cohen is getting backlash for defending former Senator Claire McCaskill in an online dust-up over a controversial term she used for transgender people. Now, Andy Cohen was trying to sympathize with uh, the former Missouri politician after she apologized for using the word transsexuals instead of transgender during um, MSNBC interview. Here's actually what she said. It's hard to pinpoint. I think it began uh, around cultural issues. The Republican Party, I think, very uh, adroitly adopted cultural issues as part of their main theme. Whether you're talking guns or issues surrounding the right to abortion in this country or things like gay marriage and the right for transsexuals and, and other people who we as a party have tried to, quote unquote, look after and make sure that they're treated fairly. As we, you know, circled those issues, we left some voters behind and Republicans dove in with a vengeance and grabbed those voters. And you've seen this shift. You saw it in the South. I've seen it in the rural areas of my state. Uh, so we've got to get back to the meat and potatoes issues. So uh, Cohen was, I guess, trying to do the nice thing by saying you misspoke. Uh, don't think twice about it. But kind of that decision to come to her defense angered so many people who thought Cohen was in no position to grant forgiveness on behalf of the transgender community. In her apology, she actually admitted that she uh, that saying transsexuals hurt people. She said, I'm so sorry I used the hurtful term last night. I was tired, but never a good excuse. People have misinterpreted what I was trying to say. Our party should never leave behind our fight, our fight for equality for trans people or anyone else who has been marginalized by hate. My record reflects that. Yeah, Andy, you got to keep your mouth shut. Don't don't try to accept apologies for a community that you're not a part of, Yikes. honey. Yeah, that is uh, very problematic. It sure is. And that is your T-Report. Expect more coming up next hour. Okay, now, can't keep up with all the Trump lawsuits? Neither can we. And will it even impact the election? We've got the answers for you next in two minutes. President Trump's campaign filed lawsuits Wednesday in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Georgia, laying the groundwork pretty much to contest those battleground states as he slipped behind Democrat Joe Biden in the bid for the 270 electoral college votes needed to win the White House. 
Uh, and by the way, the new filings join existing Republican legal challenges in Pennsylvania and Nevada, where they are demanding better access for campaign observers to locations where ballots are being processed and counted. And they're also raising absentee ballot concerns from the campaign. Plus, there's a recount happening in Wisconsin. I can't even keep up. It's but happening. Joining us, yeah, to help us navigate all of this is lawyer and law professor Shane Inspector, who's based out of Philadelphia. So he's definitely experiencing the anxiety there as well. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. But I'm not anxious. Oh, you aren't. Good. Oh, sorry. I was projecting. That's my bad. <laughs> But you've been joining us the past few days. Is there anything new that we should know about? There are new things every minute, aren't there? Mm -hmm. There was a lawsuit today that was decided by our Commonwealth Court providing President Trump with closer access to the counting of ballots in counties in Pennsylvania. They can now get uh, in Philadelphia County. They were behind a, a window and they still are, but they were some distance away from some of the tables where counting was going on. So now <clears throat> they're going to only be counting from tables that are within about six feet of the window that the campaigns can watch the process. So that was a minor victory for the Trump campaign, but that's also going to cause the slowing down of the counting of ballots in Philadelphia County because that means that other tables where work was being done farther away now can't be used which is so wild and i guess with that type of news are these are the stakes high or low for these cases like what are we seeing here hey you know what all we're doing here is delaying the inevitable and the inevitable in pennsylvania is that vice president biden is going to carry the state and he's going to carry the state relatively handily when all is said and done by somewhere around 100,000 votes, which for historical context would be about twice the margin that President Trump had in Pennsylvania in 2016. Uh, now, Shane Inspector is with us, lawyer and law professor. A lot of people on the other side, kind of they use the arguments like, why would they be so worried about someone being present for the recounts? You know, And why in some uh, counties, there's more votes for Biden than registered voters. I saw that article. What can you say to that? Okay, well, let's take the issues one at a time. First of yeah. all, in, in no counties are there more votes than there are registered voters. That is an urban legend. On your other question about why can't you be real close to the counters, uh, the answer is that, that you should be able to have a fair opportunity to meaningfully observe what is occurring. But that does not mean that you're allowed to have your head uh, within a few inches of the shoulder of, of the workers. And particularly in the COVID environment, I think it's fair for all of us to insist on a safe working environment. So it's fine to have folks behind a plexiglass screen or behind a window, but they ought to be able to be within a close enough distance that they, they can observe meaningfully what's occurring. So the, I really want to touch on kind of some of these uh, election observers, because obviously there's so many protests happening right now, specifically in Detroit, where a man wearing a horror movie mask presented credentials, allowing him to act as a poll challenger in Detroit, Michigan. Oh. And uh, then the police had to kind of remove him after he started yelling and using racist language. So how are they supposed to be verifying these people who are poll challengers if situations like this are happening? Well, I think we have to distinguish 
between those people who are exercising their constitutional right to protest, which is occurring outside of <clears throat> county election offices all across the country, and not just protest, but also perhaps demonstrate, to, to be cheering. There are a lot of people cheering. Uh, there mm-hmm. are people chanting, count every vote. I, that's all fine. That ought to be protected. With respect to people who are, who are watching the process at the designation of the Trump campaign or the Biden campaign, they must do so peacefully. And if they don't do so peacefully, there are security officers who can remove them. And of course, it's very important that this process continue in an orderly manner. And Ryan, yeah, there are some excesses that are occurring across the country, but by and large, this process is going forward in a, in a peaceful and decent manner. Now, uh, the Biden campaign attorney, Bob Bauer, said if Trump goes to the high court, he'll be in for one of the most embarrassing defeats the president has ever suffered by the highest court in the land. What does he mean by that? Well, Bob Bauer is a very good lawyer. That might be slightly excessive rhetoric. I don't think anybody really cares about embarrassment here. People who are acting as counsel for the campaigns are doing their job to zealously advocate for their candidates. I don't think that it's likely that the Supreme Court of the United States would upset the apple cart in Pennsylvania. Right now, the only issue in front of the U.S. Supreme Court is whether in Pennsylvania ballots that were mailed on or before Election Day, but received on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday of this week will be counted. That will end up being a relatively small number. Uh, My understanding from talking to a a high-ranking official today in Pennsylvania is that number is going to be somewhere in the 10 to 15,000 range. And the Biden margin of victory in Pennsylvania will be well outside of that range. So even if those votes were not counted, it will not make the difference in the outcome. Yeah. Okay. Shannon Spector, lawyer and law professor, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Yeah, I don't get why that's on voters. That should be on the USPS. And speaking of which, are the ballots the USPS is reporting uh, are untraceable going to impact the results of the election? The Washington Post joins us for that next in two minutes. The USPS have found themselves in the middle of one of the tightest presidential races in history. The 300,000 ballots they reported as untraceable are unlikely, though, to affect the outcome of the presidential race in key swing states, even in a worst case scenario where all are lost. That's according to a Washington Post analysis. And one of the writers of said piece, who's been covering all this madness, uh, Jacob Bogage, is back with us. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me again. Okay. I can't imagine what you've been through the past few days. What has been this like covering this election? What's it been like watching it happen? I mean, I think we're all kind of on pins and needles uh, trying to see where the chips are going to fall. Professionally, your mind just kind of clicks into some sort of adrenaline gear. And yeah, you, it's you, the same you thing don't here. Everyone's yeah, I it. bet. Yeah. And you don't really get to think about like consequences. You just go with the news. Yeah. And then just let's get to the story. What does it mean for a ballot to be untraceable? Yeah. So we're talking about 300,000 ballots and like you hear the term missing thrown around. These ballots are untraceable, but they're not missing. They didn't just vanish. They're not sitting in a facility somewhere. We would see them stacked up. What this is, is a ballot going into like a processing facility or like a sorting center. And there's a barcode on it and it gets scanned. And then the postal service is in such a rush to get these ballots delivered to vote counters that before it can get scanned again, saying, oh, we know where we're going to deliver it. 
somebody plucks it out of the line and they go deliver it by hand themselves. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I know you wrote in, in 17 postal districts and swing stakes that account for 151 electoral votes, more than 81,000 ballots were untraceable. Now, could examples like these impact voter margins? They could in worst case scenarios, but yeah. not enough to flip a state. I mean, we're talking about margins, right? So anything, I mean, for God's sake, Georgia could come down to a couple hundred votes, right? Yeah. I mean, anything can narrow the margins, it can have an impact. Is Are these votes themselves enough to flip a state? No. So that's, that's why it's important. We got to keep counting, count every vote. It's not over till it's over. Uh, and now this was expected though, these issues from the USPS. I mean, yes and no. I mean, the Postal Service has said, we're prepared, we have the capacity, we can do it, we're ready. Um, but you also have to think about how like, there have been mail delays all summer, right? And they removed 700 sorting machines. <laughs> you know, this, the, the, the entire agency is in a financial crisis. I mean, there right. are a lot of reasons why we could have seen this I, coming, even when the Postal Service said, no, we got it under control. And we're talking to Washington Post reporter Jacob Bogage, who's been covering uh, the election and everything happening with the USPS. So let's talk to Joy, though, because Judge Sullivan, he gave him a deadline and DeJoy just kind of was like, well, we're going to go by our standards, like what we're going to do. So did he like break the law? Like what's happening here with that situation? Yeah, this is kind of the most confounding piece right. of everything that's gone on. I was on the phone with one of the attorneys in the case when that order, when the Postal Service wrote back and said, Judge Emmett Sullivan in the District Court for the District of Columbia said, I need you to expedite the sweeps you do of all of your processing facilities. Get them done earlier in the day. So if you find a ballot, you'll have more time to deliver it. And the Postal Service kind of waited until the deadline and then said, actually, we're going to do it on our own time frame anyway. We think our time frame. And Judge Sullivan, I mean, to hear him on hearing the next day, it's like his eyes bugged out of his head. Just say, how can you not comply with an order like this? And so your question about DeJoy is really interesting. Judge Sullivan has said at some point he is going to have to appear in front of the court. Mm. I think at that point, we will learn more about how intimately he is involved with uh, election mail operations, because it's really not clear either way. Yeah, well, that said, it seems like, you know, Republicans are blaming, it seems like Democrats are the, those who sent in these mail-in ballots. Like, it's your fault. Your vote should not be counted when it seems like the system is the cause of all of this. So how are we going to hold the system accountable? That's a great question. So first of all, it is absurd, objectively, to say the method by which you vote and you cast your vote legally should somehow cast aspersions upon the validity of your ballot. Um, that is mind-blowingly stupid. Um, there's no other word for it. It's just dumb. Yeah. Um, and it's dangerous. In terms of accountability for the Postal Service, I think that could come under eventually what may be a Biden administration and leadership changes within the agency. I think it could also come in court and part of uh, the transparency and um, accountability component of these cases 
will be getting Louis DeJoy in front of a judge, getting him cross-examined by uh, opposing attorneys and yeah. demanding answers out of him. I think, you know, obviously we're, you're going to be sticking on with us next segment, but I would love to know, do you think Judge Sullivan's choice, is that going to encourage judges from other states to be as aggressive, right? And so we'll talk about that when we get back on the show. We're back with Washington Post reporter Jacob Bogage, who's been joining us on the show leading up to the election as the country has been dealing with all these issues around mailing and the USBS, and it seems like it does not. And uh, Jacob, thanks again for hanging with us today. Oh, for sure. Now, I guess, are you hearing things that uh, could have been done differently? Where do you think this will leave us next election? That's a great question. I've heard from a lot of sources that to expect action in state legislatures about voting by mail and broadening up the way folks can cast their ballots. So in the House, uh, in the in this past uh, congressional term, we heard a lot of talk about H.R. 1, mm-hmm. which was Democratic with a small d reform, right? making Election Day a national holiday, you know, more funding for local election officials, things like that. I think we could see state versions of that, and, and that would include vote by mail. Because in a lot of states, I mean, we, we're talking about you know, some of these problems, but in a lot of states, it went really well, right? I mean, like, we're still waiting on an official count in Arizona, but like Arizona's doing really well. Nevada, we're still waiting on an official count, did really well. Other states like Utah, like Oregon, have been doing uh, vote by mail for years, and they they pull it off without any issues. So uh, I could see that coming to the East Coast, coming to the Midwest, and I think that could force Congress's hand. If more states start deciding that they want to allow voters to cast votes by mail more frequently, and we know that becomes a very popular option, then funding the postal service is not just about getting the card from your Nana. It becomes a vital, an even more vital, it's already vital, an even more vital piece of election. And I don't know if Congress can dodge that. Yeah, and I mean, can you... can. Is there a connection between what we saw in Pennsylvania with the Republican Party there trying to not allow, you know, them to count ballots early? Is there a connection with all of this that we're seeing? In limited ways, I would say yes. Yeah. I mean, I think you have Republican legislatures in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, who in North Carolina, which challenged North Carolina Board of Election extending deadlines. I don't know how how directly coordinated. But it was very clear from the get-go that Donald Trump was going to challenge the validity of votes that came in later. Right. And so you had uh, Republicans in some of these states that were going to be teetering to say, well, the president's already saying this. Why don't we just enact a policy to count those votes later? Why don't we make it a self-fulfilling prophecy to count those votes later? When you gin that up, that's why you see armed militias out in Maricopa County yelling to stop the vote but then you hear in or to or to uh, keep counting but then you see in georgia and in pennsylvania people yelling stop the vote i mean when you when you call into question a method of voting for absolutely no reason this is what happened it makes chaos yeah and like what if one of their votes was in that i mean that's assuming what if there's some republican votes there too exactly when we say count every vote not it's inclusive of who the winner is going to be yeah. is we believe in democratic principles 
Democratic principles are one person, one vote. We count the votes. Okay. Well, Jacob Bogage, Washington Post, you're amazing. Thank you again for all your hard work. Thanks for having me. Uh, Now, more of the latest news and headlines coming up on What's Trending this hour. Don't go anywhere. Coming up on the show, the Victory Fund is joining us to share how they crafted some of the biggest historical wins for the LGBTQ plus community in Congress. They do amazing work. I'm so happy that they got to join us on the show today. Oh, my God, I am, too. I mean, just to one, read about them and see everything that has happened and just to be so proud. I mean, it's honestly one of the highlights out of this entire election season. And so I can't wait to dive in on their process. Definitely. Uh, Plus, we're going to be talking about the future of the Republican Party and will they embrace Trumpism in the future? Mm. That is a word, Trumpism. I mean, speaking of uh, Trumpism, we are most definitely seeing it with uh, Trump on CNN doing his speech. It was wild. Let's uh, play a clip of that because uh, President Trump did speak as the day ended talking about fake polls, how historic the election was for Republicans and how their votes are being suppressed. (laughs) And uh, sorry, I laugh because I feel like the whole definition of suppression is it's just ironic that he brings that up. And uh, they were the party of inclusion. Democrats are the party of the big donors, the big media, the big tech, it seems. And Republicans have become the party of the American worker. And that's what's happened. And we're also, I believe, the party of inclusion. Now, Joe Biden is currently at 264 and Trump at 214 electoral college votes. Associated Press called Arizona for Biden. And we are waiting on Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's honestly so scary uh, what we're seeing. MSNBC actually cut Trump's speech um, um, right when he started to lie right out the gate, you know, and I think that was something that we haven't really seen networks do. And I appreciated that they did that because he is literally just using this platform, this moment to tweet and to read his tweets that he probably would have tweeted if Twitter wasn't blocking him from doing so. And so, yeah, this is just ridiculous. And the fact that he's just telling all these lies, I just, I don't know this there's, we can, we might as well just kiss that peaceful transition goodbye, that transfer of power. We might as well just kiss it goodbye at this point because he's never going to concede. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens when the actual results come in. Uh, Definitely. There's a lot to cover on the show this week. Now, Pennsylvania Secretary of State Kathy Buchvar shared the latest today as well. Um, We're coming in the home stretch here. The counties have been working incredibly, incredibly hard. Hundreds of thousands of ballots have been counted so far today. Um, and we're in very good shape, um, but there's still still some to count. So they are working incredibly hard. They're going to keep counting into the evening. And, you know, stay tuned. Okay, they're in the home stretch. Uh, Pennsylvania is at 89% reporting. Trump is at 50%. And Biden is at 48.9%. We've been talking to a lot of people on the ground in Pennsylvania who've said that Biden uh, would win by 100,000 votes. But who knows at this point? We'll see. Now, three current defense officials revealed the defense secretary has prepared a resignation letter that's according to NBC News. The report also says that uh, as Defense Secretary Esper, his tenure may be coming to an end, he is helping members of Congress draft legislation that would strip names of Confederate leaders from military bases in a move, quote, that could put him at further odds with President Donald Trump. 
So uh, that is happening as we speak. And that's what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, so let's dive into the T-Report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. And Warner Brothers is catching some backlash for their latest movie, The Witches. You know, the remake of the 80s or 90s classic. I mean, I loved it. Um, That's one of the movies I remember seeing when I was young. It scared the mess out of me. And the remake is surprisingly really good. But uh, they're catching some... uh, backlash because Anne Hathaway's character basically is missing some fingers and it's similar to a limb abnormality um, and it's a condition that sometimes is referred to as a split hand Um, and I guess many people have spoken out to express their disappointment over the nature of that character which this movie is supposed to be obviously fantasy, but uh, British uh, Paralympic swimmer Amy Marin, she actually spoke out about this, talking about on Twitter. She said it's not unusual for surgeons to try and build hands like these for children wow. slash adults with certain limb differences. And it's upsetting to see something that makes a person different being represented as something scary. Um, Now, Warner Brothers uh, spokesperson said the company was deeply saddened to learn that our depiction of the fictional characters and the witches could upset people with disabilities, adding that it regretted any offense caused by the film. If you haven't seen that film, you can check it out on HBO Max. But also, I think they had the same limbs in the original. I just, it's a fine line, right? And I think people are way more outspoken than they probably were back when the original one happened. There was no social media. Um, Oh, yeah. But I will say I really enjoyed the film and it makes sense if folks are feeling a little offense, uh, offended by that character and kind of by the way they're being portrayed, especially when they ha- they're they living with it in real life. I would be oh, upset yeah. too. Totally. Uh, that, yeah, does, doesn't seem to be the intention here. Uh, and perhaps they didn't even know that something like this existed as specific as it is to the character. Which right? speaks to not ha- like understanding or having the right people on, you know, on the set that could kind of talk about that, Dis, you know, people with disabilities or people that explores that and making sure that representation, even though it is a scary movie, you want to make sure things are told in a, in a way that doesn't come off as offensive to folks who are actually living with it. It brings a lot up. Yeah. As, as we become more aware of these things. That's it, true. It most definitely does. And that is the T-Report. But before we go, we have to talk about um, Miami Pride and what they're doing. Miami Beach faces a pride. Guess what, honey? It's literally happening. We had someone on, what, not too long ago, they were talking about their faces of pride. And this the goal of their p- campaign is to highlight the beautiful, diverse uh, diversity within our community. And yeah. I think it's like only one more day to sign up. So head over to uh, MiamiBeachPride.com. Faces of Pride is popping up right there as soon as you click it. And you, you better sign up because, honey, you get to live all of these and get into all of these experiences that they're setting up. They're doing Miami Beach Pride in a completely different way. You get to be a face of pride. Yeah. Why not? Hello. <laughs> like an ambassador. Yes, yes. I would apply if I could. Now, coming up next, Amber Phillips from The Washington Post joins us to discuss how Trumpism actually worked for the Republicans this time around and what the future of the party looks like. That's in two minutes. Even if Trump loses, the takeaway for some top Republicans is that embracing him worked. And that's the headline for the latest opinion piece in The Washington Post by reporter Amber Phillips. She joins us on the show right now. Thanks again, Amber. We know how busy you've been this week, to say the least. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, in your piece, you write about how embracing Trumpism has worked for Republicans. Uh, What do you mean by that? 
I, yeah, what I mean is that what they woke up to Wednesday morning or saw Tuesday night was a surprise to even them. They performed, way outperformed expectations in down ballot races. Uh, the House, the Senate, the state houses, these were all areas that they expected to lose. They saw in polling President Trump being dragged down by his coronavirus handling and, and other things and thought, okay, we're going to get dragged down with the president. And then all of a sudden that wasn't the case. And immediately I saw House Republican and to a lesser degree Senate Republican leaders attribute their surprise victories to the president. They just feel like he reached out to voters in a way that they haven't been able to without him on the ballot. And that's super interesting, right? Because Donald Trump has built himself as this anti-politician. That was the whole messaging in 2016. So why would Republican politicians feel like Trump's base would even identify with them? Yeah, they have seen, you know, they don't, I don't think they understand why I don't think a lot of people do, if anyone, but a complete transformation of their Republican base to Trump. One strategist on the Republican side, who's actually a critic of the president, but it analyzes this well, told me he felt like the party crossed a threshold mm. uh, when Trump won the nomination in 2016 and then won the presidency in 2016. And you can't really go back in a way that some Republicans would want to. And so, you know, there's a recognition of that. I think Republican leaders, even before seeing the success they had down ballot, knew that some aspects of Trumpism was, was here to stay. But then they made the connection between 2016 and 2020 and their surprise results in areas they just haven't been able to do well in in the past and said, what was the, what was the through line that was President Trump being on the ballot? We... There's something there for us. Yeah. Again, we're talking to Amber Phyllis, political reporter for The Washington Post. And when you say Trumpism, what is Trumpism? I mean, is it just basically being a nationalist? You know, that's such a good question, Shira, because it's so many different aspects. And, I, and it's probably lazy of me to just use that adjective to describe a very dynamic person. Some Republicans see it as policy, like Trump has is completely thrown Republican orthodoxy about free trade out the window. And now it's about tariffs, which is just unheard of in Republican circles, you know, a couple of years ago. But it's also about rhetoric, right? right. There is a Congress, a new member of Congress coming in, a uh, 25-year-old in North Carolina, Madison Cawthorn, who tweeted after he won uh, cry libs or something like that, which many saw as like a middle finger to bipartisanship, but just very ooh, pro-Trumpian. And then there's a darker side to it. And I think that's epitomized by the rise of conspiracy theories dominated by QAnon. There are two new members of Congress coming in who have embraced uh, QAnon. Yeah. Conspiracy theories. And one, Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, you know, coupled that with some very racist comments that Republican leaders tried to denounce. Well, no, she's still one. She's going to Congress. <laughs> yeah, she's yep, still one. She, she is. And that's what my concern is, right? Like, how should Democrats prepare for this? Like, are they going to have to combat Trumpism more aggressively? Because we really don't know how long the when they go low, you go high way of being could last. Right. I do not know. I don't yeah. think they know the answer to that because you campaigning against him, they thought worked uh, for them. At, or they were hoped at least it was going to work in 2020. It may still work with the presidency and they kept their majority in the House. But how, how hard do you push on that when, you know, perhaps he's not in office anymore? 
And it's just Republicans kind of like wrapping themselves in Trump's id and or his policies. How, how hard do you push on that at the risk of alienating voters that clearly Democrats would like to win? So races aren't this close next time around. Right. I mean, it's it's wild. Now, in your piece, you mentioned House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, how he said the Republican coalition is bigger, more diverse and more energetic than ever before. That is because of President Trump. How will this change who we see uh, runs in the future and where we see the Republican Party going? Yeah, I don't know, because they're obviously going to try. And that McCarthy quote, I thought, is key to try to emulate President Trump. But and to some degree, that worked for some of the candidates I just mentioned. But it was with Trump on the ballot. What happens if and when he loses his presidential race is not on the ballot. And then they try, you know, to boost more diverse candidates. You know, they particularly strategically tried to to recruit women in a way they'd never done before this election cycle in areas that Trump has had like the magic touch. But Republicans haven't had necessarily Michigan is a good state, a good example of that or Pennsylvania or even Wisconsin. Do they stumble? Uh, you know, I've, I've seen plenty examples of Republican candidates and politicians get tripped up in scandal and try to say, oh, you know, the Justice Department's playing politics against me. This is all fake news. And it doesn't work for them the way it has worked for the president. Yeah, he's made a deal with yeah. the devil. That's, that's- yeah, for sure. I guess for me, I I would want to know, do we think, especially let's say Joe Biden wins, right? And we have four years of him. Is Trumpism as strong as it would be now? Right. I think there are certainly Republicans, and I talked to some today, strategists, not ones in office, who want, hope that it's not as strong. They, they want to go back to some degree to the old Republican ways. Yeah, definitely. Well, Amber Phillips, you're going to be joining us in a bit to talk about what if there is a tie, what happens next. But right now, we're going to be talking about the Victory Fund. They've been instrumental in shaping LGBTQ plus representation in politics. They're joining us after this to discuss the historic wins this election and what's to come. That's in two minutes. The House saw its largest, most diverse group of openly LGBTQ plus candidates win election and re-election to Congress this week. And Victory Fund was essential in making that happen. The group is a national organization that works to increase the number of openly LGBTQ plus elected officials in government. And we have Sean Malloy, Senior Political Director at Victory Fund with us right now. Thanks for being here. Hello, happy to be so. And congrats. This was a big week for you all and for the community at large. Yeah, absolutely. We had over 300 candidates on the ballot on Tuesday. As of right now, over 190 of them have won. And uh, a little more than 50 of those are still outstanding with votes being counted or too close to call. So we had a great night. Absolutely. So what goes into this process? Because having such a success like this really means that y'all are crafting these individuals that we're seeing in getting elected into office. Yeah, absolutely. We are not an organization that endorses every LGBTQ person who runs for office. We identified over a thousand people Uh, who openly identifies LGBTQ, who ran this year. Uh, However, we only endorse about 380 some of them. And part of that is the process of our endorsement. You have to have three major components to be endorsed by our organization. First, you have to be openly LGBTQ and you have to believe in the full support of the full diversity of our community. So you're not saying trans people aren't part of the LGBTQ movement. You're not racist. 
right? Those kind of things. Just the bare minimum uh, things. Just bare minimum things, right? Um, but important to codify. Yes. Uh, the next sure. one is, you know, next year will be our 30th anniversary, and our founders enshrined uh, in the endorsement criteria that you have to believe in the fundamental right of privacy. Um, and so back then, that was sodomy laws, that was HIV medication access, right? All those different kind of moral majority crusades that were happening. Um, and right now, that's also important because it also believes you have to be a pro-choice candidate. And so, you know, uh, as this Supreme Court takes hold, you know, that's going to be even more important at the state and local level. But the third part, which is probably almost, you know, the most important part is you have to have a viable plan to win. And uh, what me and my team do is we vet candidates. Uh, we spend a lot of our time talking to stakeholders on the ground, talking to members of LGBT groups that know these candidates or maybe don't know these candidates and uh, looking to see if they have training to help make sure that they know how to run a campaign, that they are on the path to fundraising to help make sure that that campaign plan uh, is going to you know, actually happen and uh, actually have what it takes in order to get over the finish line. It's not a guarantee. We're not only looking for winners. We're looking for people who are viable. Those are the three components of our endorsement plan. And that's one of the reasons why so many of them were well prepared to win this week. Again, we're talking to Sean Malloy, Senior Political Director at Victory Fund. Now, this is fascinating. So do people apply or are you also finding those individuals from the work you do? It's a mix of both. The yeah. ones that we know, the ones that are in our pipeline, uh, we have a partner organization, the LGBTQ Victory Institute. They work specifically to do candidate training for LGBTQ people. And so, you know, we, we know uh, the folks over there and uh, we look to see who they graduate from their programs. We also look to see who a lot of our partner organizations uh, graduate from their programs, Emerge, Emily's List, um, you know, National Democratic Training Committee, you know, PCCC, a lot of these different groups that have a distinct focus in making sure that their trainees are LGBTQ in addition to other diverse identities. So we have that pipeline. We also have a ton of folks who are looking to move up the ladder, um, yeah. running, you know, they're on a city council, they're running for mayor. They're a mayor, they're running for the state legislature. They're a legislator, they're running for Congress. It's a mix of folks that are already in the pipeline and folks that just show up and say, hey, I decided to run. I mean, it, it also kind of sounds like you have a very like eligible bachelor, bachelorette or bachelor them system of people that I, because I'm single and I love a politician. Um, <laughs> but I would know how has your, like how has this off pivoted with COVID? There's the pandemic, right? It's not in person, I would assume anymore. So how did you prepare these candidates to kind of deal with that when it came to their own campaigns? Yeah. You know, we started endorsing 2020 candidates in December of 2019. And so the campaign plans we originally reviewed up until, you know, March were traditional campaign plans. After that, we have, uh, you know, we made sure that our candidates had adapted for COVID so that they were virtually campaigning or had a safe way to, to canvas door to door. I think that one of the things we're going to be looking at uh, on the left is, you know, was not canvassing going to be was it negative to our down ticket races? Because, you know, that really didn't start happening until October. And I think the, the right wing got ahead of a lot of our Democratic candidates in some of those down ticket races. But having a plan to make sure that you know how to virtually fundraise, you can hold those events, that you can hold a phone bank over a Zoom call. Those are things that we help make sure our candidates understood um, and were doing uh, before we endorse them. 
All right. Well, after this, we want to talk about those names who won and the rising stars um, in the LGBTQ plus community who are now going to be big names in the political world and what happens next. So stick around with us and let's go there. We've been talking about the historic wins in Congress for the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, but now that they are in, what happens next? Sean Malloy, Senior Political Director at Victory Fund, is with us. So before we get into the next steps, do you have any names you want to discuss here? Anyone you want to give a shout out to on the show who really made history this year? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned at the, at the front end that we were uh, going to have the largest congressional delegation of LGBTQ people. Uh, that includes the first ever uh, black queer people serving in the United States Congress. Uh, Mondaire Jones um, from New York and Richie Torres, who is black and Latino, yes. uh, also from New York. Uh, New York has three LGBT, well, not T, sadly, yet, but uh, three queer legislators in Congress. Um, that's, a, that's a huge deal. Um, we also, uh, I think by now, folks know, might know that Todd Gloria was elected mayor of San Diego. You know, that's a top 20 city. That's a hugely important perch uh, in the country's most populous state. So that's another huge win. And when it comes to down ticket successes, we had our first ever legislators elected in the state of Tennessee. Um, Tory Harris was, oh, okay. Tory Harris was just elected uh, to the legislature. He's black, he's bi, and he's going to be a historic first. He's cute also. He's he's a Memphis. He's in Memphis. I'm telling you, I I scoped it. I started following the Victory Fund (laughs) and started following folks as well. I was like, yes. He's, he is fantastic. And uh, other history was made in Delaware, where we elected for the first time someone to the state Senate and the state House. And that state senator is also the first trans state senator in the entire country, Sarah McBride. Uh, and she's joining um, two other new trans legislators, uh, Taylor Small in Vermont and Stephanie Byers, the first um, trans person of color elected to a state legislature in the entire country. And so those are just a touch of the, of the historic wins from Tuesday. Yeah, and we've seen so many attacks, especially with this administration. We've seen so many attacks on the LGBTQ plus community. Do you think this new kind of rainbow wave that we're seeing will now kind of combat those changes? Because now, you know, those representatives, those Republicans, they have colleagues who are a part of that community. Do you think that's going to change? Yeah, that's the whole premise of our organization. Representation matters. And it's a lot more difficult to say we are lesser than if we're sitting at the table or in the committee room with them. And uh, and they can talk to us and see that we are people. We're just people, too. And so, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And when people in the community are shaping the policies, I mean, that is key to make change as well. Absolutely. You know, having an LGBTQ perspective uh, you can tell when an LGBTQ person was not in the room uh, when they're crafting policies that are meant to help our community and uh, having more and more LGBTQ people in the room and them being diverse as well is is a huge uh, thing that our community continues to build on. I really hope you all documented this because this whole experience and talking with you all reminds me of uh, AOC Knock Down the House, that documentary that was so powerful. Um, And this is such a moment that should be documented because I wish I would have seen this when I was growing Mm -hmm. up and seeing this representation and seeing a a Richie Torres and a Moran Dare Jones like that. it's, It's incredible for what they're doing. And I know they don't take it lightly. 
Well, we did a winning 2020 series on Facebook to help uh, okay. introduce these folks. Maybe we could splice those together and make a movie. I don't know. There's something there. We'll be in touch. Sean, just as we wrap things up, what's now the focus post-election? Yeah, absolutely. Our work continues. Um, we already have folks for 2021 candidacies uh, reaching out to us. We've actually already endorsed some people to be on the New York City Council. All of the openly LGBTQ council people are turned out. And so if we do not elect new LGBTQ people in the country's biggest city, we will not have representation on council. So that's a huge focus already. Redistricting is also happening next year. And we've got a ton of folks uh, running for re-election to local uh, races, which are the starting point for so many of these folks. Yep. Well, Sean Malloy, thank you again for being with us today. Absolutely happy to. And Sean Malloy is a senior political director at Victory Fund. Now coming up, we've got more Let's Go There after this, including the latest coming from election 2020, the never-ending election 2020. That's next. Coming up on the show, what if there is a tie with the electoral votes? What happens next? And we've got Amber Phillips back with us from The Washington Post for that. And I love having her on. She's great. She's on The View. She's on Let's Go There. You know, that's how we work. Mm-hmm. She was, uh, I was watching her during our election coverage in between like breaks and commercials and stuff. She was on the Washington Post live stream. I loved it. Yeah, well, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Lots happening, as we know, on social media. Anderson Cooper dug into CNN contributor Rick Santorum after the former Pennsylvania senator suggested that businesses weren't boarding up their storefronts to keep Donald Trump supporters from looting. Yikes. This uh, gets problematic. Really, those caravans of, of armed Trump folks driving around in big trucks blocking traffic, that's not a concern? I, I uh, mean, I don't think you'd find too many in Manhattan, but I could be wrong. Well, actually, did. They, they shut off the bridges to Manhattan. Well, we well I, in I, fact, I, four of them. I guess, I guess that's not the police that, escort. That, that's not what we, at least from our perspective. Right. Yeah, white people don't, aren't, yeah, as a white Republican, you're not scared about, like, white armed Trump supporters hovering around I'm, cities I'm, that they I'm don't live in. I'm scared of any armed people who are doing things. Okay, that are well, the president doesn't seem to be because he likes it when they show but up in the so state. Now there's also some clips of him and Van Jones getting at it with each other, but it's a lot of yelling over each other, so we won't play it here, but uh, it was a pretty informative and entertaining. Yeah, it for sure was. Um, I don't know, to be honest, who keeps inviting Rick back. I know he represents a certain side, but yeah, he's exhausting. He says he really puts his foot in his mouth sometimes and it's just annoying. But I will say I was I'm watching CNN as we're kind of in and out. And he was just talking about a Trump speech earlier and how it's dangerous for him to be saying some stuff like that. He said that there was some there could be some possible validity to what Trump's claims are, but we don't know that. And without having evidence, it's dangerous for anyone that is elected president or president to ever say something like that. I'm happy he said that because it seems like he was kind of not um, condone or condemning the protesters or those who are armed, who are Trump supporters, who have been he, outside. He always flip-flops. Uh, locations, yeah, for sure. Now let's move on to Greta Thunberg. You know your favorite row, 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 your boat girl. You always called her that. Yeah, I haven't She's, called her that in forever because we haven't really talked about her. What's going on? That is true. Well, she is getting involved in the American election, at least on uh, Twitter. So you know, her and Donald Trump aren't necessarily friendly with each other in 2019, following the team climate activist election as Time Magazine's Person of the Year. President Trump had tweeted that the choice was, quote, ridiculous and that Thunberg, quote, must work on her anger management problem, then go to a good old fashioned movie with a friend. So basically insulting a teenager. OK, who's. 
changing the world. So Greta decided to quote tweet him right now. His tweet, stop the count. She posted, so ridiculous. Donald must work on his anger management problem. Then go to a good old fashioned movie with a friend. Chill, Donald. Chill. Drop the mic, Greta Thunberg. I mean, she always has those quips. And I don't know if it's her mama talking, but it might be her. Who knows? She's great. Yeah. Yep. Now, MSNBC's Jacob Soboroff is being praised for demanding evidence from Rick Grenell, that's Trump's advisor and former acting director of national intelligence, to back up his assertions about fraudulent votes in Nevada. Here's the clip. You see right now, can you talk about the evidence? You're claiming Fox thousands Fox. of illegitimate votes here in Nevada. Fox. What's the you evidence? Should, you should go in and ask the question of the clerk. No, 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 no. Which you haven't you done You guys yet. just made and the so claim. No, in go. fact, you also said there's no election observers. There's Democratic and Republican election observers inside, Mr. Grenell. Former DNI Grinnell, acting DNI, where's the evidence of the fraud? You haven't presented any evidence of fraud. Where's the evidence? They've presented no evidence of fraud, Craig. Uh, so we're live on MSNBC. You've said thousands of illegitimate ballots. Thousands of illegitimate ballots. Where are they? Where's the Matt Schlapp? Where are the illegitimate ballots? Where are the illegitimate ballots? So thousands of illegitimate ballots is what they're alleging. They've presented literally no evidence of that, and they're saying go to the uh, county here to ask them of that. We know for a fact there are Democratic and Republican election observers inside. Now holding these folks accountable because they are throwing out a lot of claims. And so good on Jacob Sobroff for doing that work on the ground. And that was so much trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so let's talk about the T-Report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. And a couple that I honestly thought wasn't together anymore, but apparently they still are, was Ariel Dawson and Senator, uh, New Jersey Senator uh, Cory Booker. Wait a second. They're still together. Of course they are. You know, I love those two. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hadn't heard from them in forever. I felt like, you know, at one point they were pushing their relationship in our face. Um, But Rosario is, uh, she posted on Instagram how she is so proud of her boyfriend, Cory Booker, following his reelection. She posted, say, a, a beautiful congratulatory message saying so proud and grateful for you, my love. I got to vote for you here in New Jersey. And I'm so glad that you overwhelmingly and rightfully won your seat. Um, he actually beat his opponent scoring 60% of the votes, which is pretty big. Um, mm-hmm. And she also continued to say to know your leadership will continue to guide us with love, brilliance, patience, grace, effectiveness, is the kind of representation and hope we need. And did you know they moved in together in June? Oh, no. I mean, they're pretty close. They're, they have a, a great adult relationship. So Yeah, I, well, me. of course. What? I, <laughs> sure, sometimes I, I feel like I'm talking to like a 12-year-old <laughs> an adult relationship. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're real. They're, I think they're the real deal. I love They're going to probably two. end up getting married. It kind of oh, hurts totally. my soul. Um, but I'm, I was really shocked by that news. And that is your T-Report. Find out more of her message on our website at weirdchannelq.com. It hurts me because, you know, I would have gone after Booker if, you know, he wasn't with Rosario. Or and, you were in course, a relationship. I, well, now I'm in a relationship. Now I'm in a happy wow, relationship. Wow. Anyway. Your partner is really going to listen <laughs> no. to this and just be like, no, what? No, he doesn't. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Okay. Now coming up, if, if there was a tie with electoral votes, what happens next? There is a possibility here. We're going to be getting into that in two minutes. So what if there is a tie? It's unlikely but possible. And here to discuss how that would even work. Back with us is Amber Phillips, political reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Hey, guys. Uh, So 
Biden flips Arizona, Michigan, and Wisconsin, but every other state remains as it was in 2016, there could be a 269 to 269 tie. So then what happens next, Amber? Yeah, it goes to one of the least popular institutions in all of America (laughs) to decide this, which would be Congress and specifically the House of Representatives, the lower chamber. The Constitution says that the Senate gets to decide the vice president and the House gets to decide the president. But they don't vote the way they typically vote on legislation, where every individual votes. The Constitution mandates is that you get together with your state delegation. So in Wyoming, that's like, what, one or two people. Uh, In California, that's like, oh, what is the number? 30, 30, 40 people. It doesn't matter. Every state gets one vote. And the vote is going to be decided by how many people in your party are in your state, if that makes sense. So if if Wyoming is a Republican-controlled state delegation, which it is, they're probably going to vote for Trump. California, a Democratic-controlled state delegation, they're going to vote for Biden. You know, after reading and kind of knowing that there's a possibility of a tie, it just gave me so much more anxiety on top of everything (laughs) because it just feels like it's hectic. But I wonder, does a possibility of this tie add pressure to the Democrats' flipping the Senate and keeping majority in the House. It certainly did. Um, You know, Nancy Pelosi had said, if it came to us, you know, we're going to do everything we can to build up our state delegations. And she said this weeks before the election. Yeah. So that if it comes to us, we're able to give it to the Democrat, Joe Biden. So let me say this. The numbers before the election were that Republicans actually had a slight edge in state delegations. So if you divide the House up by states, it's Republicans who have the majority. And thus, even though Democrats have the majority of individual lawmakers, the tiebreaker, let's just assume everyone's going to be hyperpartisan, would go to the president, President Trump. Yeah. That is the part. That was worrisome in reading uh, this piece. And again, we're talking to Washington Post reporter Amber Phillips. Do you think this could be part of the plan? What they're trying to do right now, they're, they're seeing this as a loophole. I think the Trump campaign, that's a good question, Chair, is doing everything they can to drag this out. And that's certainly one area. You know, the Atlantic had interesting reporting a couple weeks ago as well that the Trump campaign was talking to lawmakers in Pennsylvania, state lawmakers, about if things got dragged out and it's December and it's time for the state to announce who its electors are and it didn't have anyone the law would actually send it to the state legislature there, which is Republican controlled. And so those Republicans could vote, oh, we're going to give it to President Trump. When the Washington Post has those lawmakers, they, they denied having those conversations. But they're out there on the record talking to The Atlantic about it. And I bring up that example to underscore that I think the Trump campaign is doing everything it can, looking mm-hmm. at every avenue, dusting off the history books. <laughs> about how to try to win this thing. It's like just throwing stuff in, at the wall and hoping it sticks. Um, when you talk about history, though, has this ever even happened in history, like a, a tie? If this were to happen, it would be the third time in history that the House got to decide this election. Oh, wow. It got, oh. Yeah, it got close to a tie. And I think it was the 1860s. There was just like a such ugly election. And there were actually one or two states that couldn't decide their electorates, kind of like that situation I just outlined in Pennsylvania. And they brought to Congress and Congress was like, we actually don't quite know what to do, even though even as we read the Constitution, we're fighting over how to do it. And so they passed a law called the Electoral College Act that would spell out exactly how you handle, okay, what happens if there's a tie? 
What happens if there's a state delegation that can't decide electorates and they actually hand us two slates of it? What do we do? So they wrote a law, and I was talking to legal experts about this um, before the election in preparation of something crazy, and they said that law is completely unreadable. Like, <laughs> they, like They're like, that. this holds no weight in modern times. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I feel like after everything this country has been dealing with from Donald Trump, why do you think this race is so close? Gazillion dollar question. You know, I've been talking to strategists on both sides. They don't have answers. But one thing is clear is that partisanship is a huge motivator. Uh, The Republican brand is stronger than I think their opponents thought it was. And there's evidence of that, especially with how well Republicans did down the ballot. Right. And um, there's something about Trump's message that resonated. I, you know, our exit polls at The Washington Post did that the coronavirus pandemic was not the plurality of voters' concerns. It was the economy and something <laughs> about Trump and the economy resonated yes. even yeah. when the economy is struggling, yeah, which is hundreds of millions in debt. Well, Trump really- is running the country like he's a CFO. <laughs> Like he, that's, he was failing. I know exactly. But that's what people, I think they see that and they're like, oh, he's all about the money. He'll put more money in our pocket. Well, can I chime in on that? Our Washington Post team talked to uh, Florida voters in the Miami area, particularly from, uh, you know, families with ties to Cuba and Venezuela and Central America. And they said that. They said exactly that, that they felt like Trump just gave a more optimistic economic message. And that's that's what that's what they want to hear. Right. A, a lot of people don't want to hear that we and our friends and family could get sick and die. That's true. And something that maybe the Democrats should look at moving forward. All right. Well, Amber Phillips, thanks again for being with us. Thank you. Amber Phillips is a political reporter for The Washington Post. We're wrapping up the show with our Yaz Queen of the day. Yes, Queen. So again, a lot of first this election, a lot of good stuff, although a lot of us are focusing on the negative stuff right now. And by the way, if you missed our conversation with the Victory Fund, please go check it out. They are doing incredible work. Uh, You can listen to that on our podcast, wherever podcasts are available. Of course, all you got to do is search. Let's go there. But let's highlight this, okay? Maury Turner, 27, who won the race for Oklahoma House District 88, becoming the first Muslim lawmaker in Oklahoma and first non-binary state legislator in U.S. history. I mean, speaking of the Victory Fund, that's amazing. This is incredible. So many doors are being open. Yeah, and here's a bit more about them. Hi, I'm Marie Turner. My pronouns are she and they, and I'm a born and raised Oklahoman. As your state representative, I promise to stand shoulder to shoulder with you in this fight to better Oklahoma. So a Yaz Queen to Marie Turner. Great stuff. Yes, and we're the same age, which means... They're doing way more better things than I am. So, Different cool. things, not better. Different. I don't know. I mean, making an actual <laughs> impact, who knows? We're making an impact, Ryan. <laughs> uh, but, you know, on that note, we ha- we're we going to give a nod to the things that are distracting us right now and helping us uh, escape from the madness. And Ooh. we thought that would be a good way to end the show today because each of us have been watching different things to kind of take a break. Mm-hmm. So what have you been watching, Ryan? Well, it's not even just watching. Obviously, I uh, started binging Grey's Anatomy again. I'm already halfway done with season again? two. Yes. Wait. 
You're um, doing all of that again? Yeah, I want to watch it again. And it's a great show you can always watch. And I'm literally crying every single night. Um, but also, I have been playing a mobile game called Among Us. And it's so fun. Yes. Everyone's playing it. And it's just a good time. You can kind of get lost in the game and not have to worry about what's going on in the real world. Well, not just everyone. AOC, isn't she, didn't she like... She played that? it. Yep, she played yeah, it on was, Switch. Yeah. She yeah, sure that did. Made it, big. it was already big, but it made it even bigger. So that's very cool. Well, last night I watched Octopus Teacher, the documentary on Netflix about a man and his octopus friends. So and you had a, really a very riveting afternoon, huh? Nights, yes. Nights. Wine. Uh, I, I had some wine and watched uh, this octopus. And it will make you not want to eat octopus, just saying. Okay. That's not well, true. Calamari is uh, too good. No, please. That's <laughs> It's a squid, but no, they can do, they could, there can be, I've actually eaten octopus as well, but I, you know, they're in the same family. They're all smart. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Don't kill them. That's besides the point. We're not going to go there right now, Uh, but that does it for our show today. Mm. We uh, appreciate you hanging out with us and being part of our fam. Again, we post these shows as a podcast. So please subscribe to our podcast on the radio.com app where our podcasts are available. Search Let's Go There. I mentioned it, but reminding you again, on tomorrow's show, we're going to be talking about swing states. And now that some of them are blue, should they be considered swing states in the future? Okay. Uh, Yeah. Plus, we're breaking down stop the count and count the votes. Okay, these are two things that are being thrown around right now. We're breaking down why it's so confusing and how to know the difference. Oh, my God. So much going on. People are just screaming and yelling. But, you know, I'm I'm not seeing the same type of energy that we saw when it came to the the squads and the the pepper sprays and all that stuff that we saw when it came to earlier protests this year. So, hmm. well, thank God we don't want that. Um, I don't know. I kind of want that that same energy. You know, you were able to pull out, you know, SWAT cars for black folks who were peacefully protesting. These folks are actually being violent. Got it. Oh, that. I thought you meant like, I just don't want that overall, but I see what you're saying. Okay. That is tomorrow's show on Channel Q, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern live. Please have a great night. Yes. And honey, remember to slay. See you tomorrow. Sending you love and light. I forgot that almost. Shira's not here. She's not here. This is not Shira, and we're gone. Bye. (laughs)